This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. And now, Dr. Kara King. I am joined by Dr. Tommaso Falcone, who is the previous chair of the Cleveland Clinic's OBGYN Department and Women's Health Institute and is a current chief of staff in London. We've discussed how you developed your career. Now I'd like to switch gears. Yes. You are such a, a leader in our field, and so many people look up to you as a mentor and as a coach. Talk to me about what characteristics make up a good leader. Right. So for people who are striving to become to, a leader. To become a leader. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So leadership is, you know, people have written many articles on this. You know, like, mm-hmm. and there are different components to a leader, depending where you are in your career. Just like surgery, you know, there's certain technical parts to mm-hmm. leadership. You know, like you can teach someone say, look, if you want to be a leader in OBGYN, but I just do research, forget it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have to understand the different components of what it takes to run a department, both the patient experience right. and, and the economics of it, and then to build an academic department. You know, the educational components, what it takes to attract research. And at that time, when you're ready to be a leader, you're basically going to put your career on hold. Mm -hmm. Not on hold, but certainly it is not the focus of your next phase of your professional career. So the day that you become a leader, your most important aspect of your job is your group of people called the department. Obviously, always the patient is the most important. But for purposes of your faculty... Those are the ones. Develop a, a robust group. Make sure that um, they don't burn out. And you know you can sum it up by that title of that book called Serving Leader. Yeah. So the serving leader is definitely something. But it's a learned behavior. So it cannot be a self-serving leader. It has right. to be a serving leader. And so that is one of the components. A- offshoot of that is what people are euphemistically always calling emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. which is sort of a catch term. So emotional intelligence is part of an introspective approach to what you are doing. Mm -hmm. So there are some that will have it or not, but you can, again, mostly learned behavior. So and leadership always have that component, you know, of being the serving leader, understanding the complexity of it. When I was, uh, you know, a trainee, Mm -hmm. the the chairman was always the guy... and it was usually a guy, uh, was that uh, <laughs> that's right? <laughs> that was the most successful in research, right? right? They, right. It could be, you know, it couldn't could, couldn't talk, didn't couldn't interact, but amazing research. So that that's gone, <laughs> you know, like the, that's True. the total past. Yeah. So I think that the leader has to be someone who recognizes talent mm-hmm. and fosters it. And that's why it's the serving leader. So my main role was to look for talent and bring it to the Cleveland Clinic, 
or my own department, wherever mm -hmm. I am. And that is what I'm doing in London. I'm mm -hmm. looking for talent. And that has to be part of it. Ultimately, all these learned behaviors, and you can learn them. Mm -hmm. There's one you know, part that obviously is not going to be learned behavior, and it's a passion. A lot of people from my day would say, look, you know, the natural trajectory of an academic person, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm going to be a good clinician, I'm going to be head of a division or mm -hmm. section as we call them here, I'm going to be a chairman, mm -hmm. uh, you know, by 45, and then I'm going to really do what I want when I'm, you know, 59, which is dumb. <laughs> right. Like, you know, right. like, uh, well, you know, so the leader, <laughs> the thing about being a chair is just not the usual uh, anymore, like a natural trajectory. Mm-hmm. Because there has to be a passion. There are a multitude of passions. You know, for me, it was always building a team. Mm -hmm. uh, and another book called Team of Teams. Yeah. Right? So I was always building the leaders of those teams, you know, whatever they were for endometriosis, for urogynecology, education, research, and bringing together this team of teams. So you have a group of people that you were very proud to have been the, the leader of the group. And it was all—it's always been that way. Although the, you know, people that ch were chosen as leaders were, you know, really didn't succeed because of their particular interest was something else other mm -hmm. than leading. Mm -hmm. So you have to devote a lot of time, build these teams, and all that. But in the modern era, I think that the main component, or at least the sine qua non of a leadership, is a, a passion mm -hmm. for women's health. Mm -hmm. Right. So you cannot just say. You know, I, I want to lead an academic department. I want best residency program, best fellowships, mm -hmm. best research lab. Uh, and you say, but, you know, women's health is relegated to, you know, politicians and ACOG or whatever, right. SGS, AGL, right. ASRM. Name a society. Yeah, yeah. like uh, <laughs> someone else. So right, 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 right. I think that's the passé. So the passion for women's health has to be an intrinsic part of being a leader. So you have to live it yourself. And you just can't, you know, say, okay, I voted for the correct president of the society. And so that passion for women's health has to be translated into being involved in the community. Now, the community could be your local community, mm -hmm. could be the community in, in leadership roles. But one of the things that's important, it just cannot be ticking a box off. Right. You know, like I was a president of SGS. I right. was, you know, executive, the, and now I'm moving on to the next one. You know, like you're right. ticking all your boxes so that when you die, yeah. you would say, I've ticked all the boxes. Oh, yeah, exactly. So to be a leader then is a long-term commitment towards building these teams, having the intelligent, emotional intelligence, not the uh, intellectual intelligence, mm -hmm. and at the same time, a passion for women's health. But because if there's no passion, you'll have a really good department, but you'll never have an outstanding department. If you have passion for it, then you will build an outstanding department because mm -hmm. there's a, a gain other than just, you know, like I built, you know, an amazing right. group of people. Like that personal are, gratification. That's it's right. It's more yeah. than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have such a knack for creating such an amazing team that everyone lifts everybody else up. Yeah. And it really, it penetrates when you are part of a good team. It, you know, yeah. you, it's palpable. You talk about finding people with specific talents to recruit right. to your team. Couple questions off that. So, what talents are you looking for, and how do you identify those? Like, what kind of questions are you asking, or what kind of actions are you looking for right. to help recruit those people? Well, the first thing is always a passion. You know, like mm -hmm. they have a passion for something, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, when you look for someone who to lead a group, like a team, the first thing that I look for is always a passion. Say, oh yeah, I really want to build a team. 
Now, if they just want to build their careers, I'll still hire them, but not as a leader. <laughs> because they, I you know, like, see. I will still hire them because yeah. they, they're very good. They're very smart and they want to build, you know, their career. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if you want to recruit a leader, that's to me a passion for building the team. So ultimately, the success of that person is the team. So if my success, for example, was someone looked at my H score, you know, which is how many times your papers were quoted, mm -hmm. as the only type of success, that's a major failure. You know, mm -hmm. like nobody should care what I have personally done, 10 publications mm -hmm. or, you know, 16 more surgeries. What they have to care about is what my team has done. Mm -hmm. So if my team is a failure, I as a leader am a failure. Now, you don't have to be a leader. Mm -hmm. You can just say, look, I'm here because I enjoy fulfilling my career objective, and, and that's fine. Sure. When I recruit people, I, I, you have to look immediately and say, are you the, a leader or are you a person who's going to be part of the team but amazing part of the team? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I will judge you if you are the leader by your team. Mm -hmm. But if you're here as an individual, then obviously I will judge you by what you've succeeded. Mm -hmm. Then I will look at your papers. I will look at, you know, how... You've succeeded in building an endometriosis program right. or a fibroid program, or anything of that nature. So, when you recruit people, you know you have to look at them and where they are in their career. Mm -hmm. You know, like for example, for you, it's more about your own professional development. Mm -hmm. Where are you? You know, where are you going? Right. And also to recognize that it takes, you know, a diversity, you know, a broader sense, a diversity mm -hmm. of thought. Mm -hmm. Like you know, you can't all be clones. Like everybody says, you know, like they have to resemble me, you know, like uh, intellectually, if not physically, like, you know, <laughs> and so then, and that's not good, you know, like, so diversity right. of thought, but you know, at the same time, you don't want someone who's toxic to the no, group, right? so that'll destroy the group, but uh, if all, we're all thinking the same, mm -hmm. then it, there's no diversity. The diversity of thought is the success of a team. So for example, you know, like for us, we do not have non-competes, right? right? So if you want it tomorrow, to go right across the street and say, okay, I'm going to sit up right across the street. You know, the Cleveland Clinic never thought that was a problem because, honestly, if you don't want to be here, why am I keeping you here? Mm -mm. And so, therefore, you have to be a good fit and you have to feel that you're a good fit for right. us. So recruiting then, I have to tell, you know, when I recruit people, there are a few things that tell them, you know, where, where's your role? Uh, do I see your role as a leader or as a member of the team? And, and both of them are very important. And then the other thing when I recruit people, I, I always tell them, you need to trust me. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like you can make all the promises you want, mm -hmm. but uh, ultimately you have to say, are you going to keep these promises or tell you that I can't promise this? Mm -hmm. So the critical part here is always, do you trust, you know, the person? I have to trust you that you'll deliver and you have to trust me that I'll deliver for you. Because it's a big move, you know, like for right. you, moving your family. Right. So you don't want to do that. Mm -mm. Same thing, uh, like I remember we were recruiting for fetal surgeons. And at the time, I said to someone, I said, well, I'm not going to move you until I have an, I know I can give you the team that you need to do a fetal intervention. Right. So this is what you do when you recruit. You know, are you a leader or are you, or you in the phase of, you know, personal professional development? And mm -hmm. again, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And then are you a good fit for you and can you trust me? Mm -hmm. because because if you cannot trust the person to deliver, then you've taken a big risk in your career. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever hired for a leader and then had them not deliver or see that it wasn't a good fit? And how right. do you go about handling that situation? Yeah, so it's always much easier not to hire someone because mm -hmm. everyone will understand. Right. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know if you're a fit. 
than to get rid of someone who does not a fit. It's not a fit. So hiring, try your best, uh, uh, you know, to make absolutely sure that person is a good fit for the group. Because again, getting rid of people, everyone is hurt. I mean, most people that I have had not have asked to leave were actually very nice people. Of course. I like them. Of I'd course. go have a coffee with them anytime. Yeah. But they just simply were not a fit, either because they were lone wolves, right. you know, like in a team. They just simply did not have the secret ingredient to making the team work. Yeah. So they were individually very, mm-hmm. very good. And you can do it sometimes if you're a radiologist, I suppose. You know? <laughs> right. But for us, like, you cannot do it. No. You know? And so therefore... In the modern era, you know, where we work as teams, you know, the only way that you feel comfortable at five o'clock going home to your family and leaving your patients is to your team. If your team won't take care of them the way you take care of them, then you're going to be up all night and then your family life will suffer. It's not sustainable. So therefore, you have to make sure that you choose someone with a good fit. But sometimes you're wrong. Um, and, um, and, and sometimes there are other times when people have told me, well, this person's not a good fit. And I have taken a chance with them because mm-hmm. you have to understand, like, you know, why does someone say that this other person is not a good fit? Mm-hmm. And then you find out, of course, that maybe they're going through a very traumatic time in their lives, in their personal lives, and that what their behavior is at this particular moment is not representative of their true self. Right. So you have to really understand. But hiring, I would say 70% of my job was hiring the yeah. right people. 70%. You know, and maybe... The 25% was actually running mm-hmm. the, the actual department because I chose people that knew how to run it. Right. But 70% was really spending a lot of time hiring the right people. Because, again, if you hire the wrong person, but not hiring someone, you know, like you. You right. know, like if someone said to you, um, you know, like, I don't think you're a good face. You thank me very much. I have other opportunities. Yeah. You know, like, so therefore, uh, I would rather know before, before rather than moving my family here and then finding out that it's not a good fit. Absolutely. Mm. For people who are not currently in that leadership role, mm-hmm. who are more in that professional development role. Yeah, personal what, professional yeah, development. Yeah. yeah, personal professional development. What advice do you have at making that jump? Right. There's nothing wrong with saying that I don't want the, that leadership job. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can say, I just don't want it. I mean, I'm perfectly happy. You can be very well known, president of many societies. Yeah. We have it. In our own group over here, you know, like uh, people that you know very well, and they said, you know, I don't want to be, you know, chairman of a department. Hmm. I just feel that I can contribute better in a different way. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I think that we have to remove uh, from the tick box of, you know, like uh, I am not successful unless I'm a chairman somewhere, because that was the traditional approach. Mm-hmm. First of all, you have to want it, mm-hmm. and not wanting it does not diminish you in any way possible. Mm-hmm. So. Then if you want it, you have to make sure you have the skills for it. And the skill for it has nothing to do with how great you are in the operating room, how good you are at research or education, but it has to do with do you feel that you are willing to put your own personal career, you know, it depends on the level, of course, you know, as uh, an equal footing uh, and, and maybe at a time it'll be subservient to it mm-hmm. with uh, so your own professional career development to be uh, maybe equal footing and then with time less than the uh, responsibility towards the team. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, you have to always say, is this best for the team or is it just best for me? Right. Like, you know, like um, I operate 
on Monday morning. Right. Is this only best for a team? My my surgery day was Friday. Like, you know, like in the... Falcone Fridays, I heard. Falcone Fridays. That's <laughs> right. Really that's productive. right. Falcone Friday. <laughs> and and um, it was best. It was it was fine for me, but it meant I had to come in and see my patient Saturday, which right. a lot of people don't want to do. So it's fine. You can rotate it. So you have to, uh, have to look at it. Is, are you ready for it? You know, like to make the commitment because you have a team members that are looking up to you. Mm-hmm. So if you say, "Look, no," you know, like I'm, I'm not, I just want to do the call schedule. You know, like rather <laughs> is that your defi- definition of the team, right. uh, a leader of the team? No. So once you're ready, <laughs> this is what you want. This is where you are. Yeah. And don't do it too early. Right. Like a lot of people, you know, say, uh, I, was, I was head of whatever at, you know, 29. Okay, well, that's not a good thing. Now what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, right. you know, you say you're supposed to have been taking the time to, uh, you know, develop your own career. Now you're going to have right. to do it at par- in parallel right. with the, the careers of others. And something's going to give, right? You something's can't do it all. Something's going to give, that's right. Yeah. You know, like the burnout rate is so high. You right. Know, like, so. And then don't underestimate mentorship. Mm-hmm. And and I always tell people that um, you, most people in the modern era need three mentors. Okay. okay. Or in, in my day, it was always one. You know, which with my professional career, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, okay, you know, I want you to tick six papers and you know attend six meetings, and you'll get there. So that was your professional. You you need now there's someone who co- you know to be a mentor for you. And that was it. So you yeah. said, well, what about the fact that you know? Um, my you know personal life is falling apart or right, whatever or right. how to not have it fall apart right so you have one who's for professional development then there's another for your clinical development mm-hmm. so a mentor for clinical development for clinical development means that okay this person will tell me well, how many papers and all thing whatever i want to do professionally but for clinical development he's not or she's not the one i actually go to mm-hmm. when i have a tough clinical problem mm-hmm. you know like how do i deal with this you know like there's um, you know, like I have a, I've never seen this before. It's really complicated. What do I do? Right. So that's a mentor for your clinical development. Okay. Right? Very yeah. different from professional development. Yeah. Like, you know, for professionally, what do I, what do I want to do next? And then there's the third mentor is for your own personal life mm-hmm. development. Yeah. So very different. You know, like professional development, I think I can help you. You know, like clinical development, I, I also think I tell personal development, most likely I'm not the right person <laughs> for you because, you know, we're, we're different different right. eras, you know. Like, so you need someone that will say, look, you know, how did you do this? You know, like people go up to Barry all the time. And she wrote an editorial for me for yes, JNAG. You know? I just read it. Yeah, and it's yeah. and I asked her, I said, you know, Barry, you know, I, I never had to deal with the fact that, I, you know, I have five children. Yeah. I said, you have three little boys. You know, how did you do this? You know, like... I won't be able to uh, tell someone get a wife. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could be. I mean, there's a, but but I mean, uh, it's yeah. really not the answer. I mean, like uh, even get a husband is not the answer. No, you know? build a tribe. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I said there's a personal development, and that person is going to be very different from mm-hmm. the from someone who's going to be your clinical person. You know, mm-hmm. like so Barry obviously is a urogynecologist. You're not going to tell. You as an mm-hmm. endometriosis, you know, how do I manage this particular person? Mm-hmm. So that's a separate person. And then right. and then your professional development to achieve those goals or what you want. Now, if you're lucky, you, you know, you may get, a, you know, one person can do two of those. Yeah. You know, but um, I think most people will probably wind up needing three because mm-hmm. there are different people for what you want in your life. Uh, it's hard to get, but yeah. I think that most people need those three. And... Um, 
you know, you, because you could be very successful professionally and clinically in a, in a disaster with your own right personal, at the cost of yeah, everything a, at a home. Cost of everything at home. Yeah. yeah. And and it takes someone. You know, some people don't obviously, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be a physician for that matter. But um, I think that um, um, I think that the, the new era of leaders, like Barry would be, she probably gets those quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see any pros or cons about finding mentors within your department versus reaching outside your department? For leaders, I'm sorry. For um, your mentors, so these, well, for, oh, for yeah, these three mentors. mentors. Yeah, no, yeah. in fact, I am a I am been very fortunate to be a mentor for many. You know, at the pro- obviously professional development. Yeah. Uh, more than uh, and, cl- and clinical development as well, a little bit, but certainly professional development uh, right across the globe. Mm-hmm. You know, people have asked me, so you know, I I need a mentor. Where where am I going? How to achieve certain goals? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be within your department. I mean, it's just, let's face it, it's the same problems everywhere, right? Right, exactly. So uh, clinical development probably should be um, someone in your department so you can go there. And, Easily you know, accessible, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Falcone, for spending your in-between OR cases so with right. me. That's what, you know what that means? That Tell OR me. turnover is very long at the cleaning clinic. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to run a quick five miles and then we should be about ready, right? That's right. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Okay, we'll talk good. to you thank soon. Thank you. All right, take care. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once. Create a profile. Then, let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. MedJobNetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at MedJobNetwork.com. In this portion of our podcast, we turn to advocacy and continue our conversation with Dr. Megan Evans, women's health advocate and assistant professor of OBGYN at Tufts University School of Medicine. In this episode, we'll be discussing what's happening legislatively when it comes to endometriosis, as well as the power of social media in reaching out to your legislators. So I really want to focus on endometriosis today. Can you talk to us about what's happening legislatively with endometriosis currently? Sure. So there's some legislation happening at the federal level. There's one bill that's making a lot of headway in New York. Um, So most of what I've found with legislation around endometriosis is really on education. So both for women, especially young women, as well as their providers. Uh, So in New York, there's a bill sponsored by Senator Monica Martinez and Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal. And the bill has passed both chambers and is awaiting the governor's signature. So it's really in the finish line, just waiting for that final approval from the governor. And essentially, this bill requires the State Commissioner of Health and Education to create and provide material on endometriosis to school districts and clinicians throughout the state. And really, the goal is that young women who go to their providers or go to their school nurse, they're able to identify the first signs of endometriosis to try to avoid a delay in diagnosis. You know, unfortunately, I think you know this more than anyone, that young women are really unaware that painful periods are not normal, especially periods that 
keep them out of school, that keep them away from social events, and it can be really isolating from their peers, and especially missing out on those events as a, a young woman. So this really helps to try to combat that through education. That's awesome. As you know, the average time of diagnosis, right, is like seven to 10 years from when people present with symptoms to when they're diagnosed. So this is brilliant to start for younger age kids. Do you know how young are they going? Do you know like what grade level? That, I don't know if it specifies in the bill, but I think the goal is really to start in the schools. So certainly school-age children, but I imagine the goal is to really identify women who, when they first start their periods. That's great. Very cool. So I know social media is a huge place where a lot of people get their education for certain pathophysiology and different diseases. Do you know of anything um, on a social media level of campaigns right now? Yeah, so for this particular bill, the Endometriosis Foundation, um, they started a um, social media campaign around this issue with hashtag Let's Talk Period, which was really to raise awareness about endometriosis and build support for the bill, which can... I think people underestimate how powerful social media can be. I always think about if I were to send an email to my legislator, I send the email and they receive it, but no one else sees that email going through. But if I were to tweet at them and I get retweets, it actually is so much more powerful to get that message to your representative, especially when there's a lot of retweets and then there's a lot of pressure for them to at least acknowledge these issues that are happening. And, you know, for us, especially for women's health. So I think a social media campaign is always a powerful way to advocate for issues that you care about. Are you on Twitter? Yeah. What's your handle? Um, at Megan Evans, MD. Perfect. Everyone follow at <laughs> Megan Evans, MD. Lovely. Do you have a favorite social media platform to um, discuss these bills? I personally think Twitter is very powerful. I'll give you an example. So one of my representatives who was defeated in the last election is no longer in office, but we had gone to his office and met with his staff about the maternal mortality bill that I had mentioned earlier. And they agreed to co-sponsor it, but they didn't sign on to the bill. Because you can check on congress.gov who is a co-sponsor, and you can look by bill numbers there. And we followed up with them. A month later, they still didn't co-sponsor. And followed up a month later, still didn't co-sponsor. And then I tweeted at him and talked about the importance of supporting Massachusetts women with this bill. And two days later, he co-sponsored. Stop it. And who knows if my tweet was the deciding factor, but I do go back to me sending those emails. The only people that see them are me and his staff, but putting it on a public platform and having other people kind of retweet that message and it elevates your advocacy efforts. And that's why I think Twitter can be really powerful when it comes to those type of issues. Yeah, it gives you momentum and it gets other people involved and your voice is louder. So I absolutely think that's a really good point because a lot of those people are on Twitter too, right? Exactly. You see a lot of They're their handles there. So. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. So how about the national level? Are there things happening on that level as well? Yeah, so similar form. There's several bills. There's one bill that directly focuses on endometriosis and other bills that has a broader scope, but it does have endometriosis included in them. So one bill is 
bipartisan and bicameral. So bipartisan, I think most people know what that means. It um, means that both parties support the bill, Republican and Democrat. Bicameral means that there is a version in the House and there's a version also in the Senate. So this bill recognizes the significance of endometriosis as an unmet chronic disease and also designates March as Endometriosis Awareness Month. Uh, so this was introduced by Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois and Congressman David Scott from Georgia. And it's always important to remember when you're talking about these bills, the Senate bills always have an S, the H bills always have an H in front of them. So when you're talking to your representative, just make sure you're talking about the right version. So this bill recognizes the importance of endometriosis as a health issue for women. And really, just like the New York bill, works for greater attention, public awareness, and education about this disease. And then I think one thing that's always important, especially at the federal level, is that this would provide funding to conduct additional research on endometriosis and possible clinical options. There are several other bills that mention endometriosis, but it's not explicitly about endometriosis. So one example is a House bill introduced by Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. There is not a Senate version at this point. And this amends the Public Health Service Act to try to establish a program of research looking at the presence of synthetic fibers, chemical fragrances, and other chemicals in feminine hygiene products, which is certainly an interesting topic. But one of the points of this bill is looking to see if there's any correlation with exposure to these products, certain types of of cancers, infertility, and endometriosis. So right now there's no co-sponsors, meaning that there, none of her colleagues in the House have co-sponsored the bill. She's the primary sponsor of the bill, so it's pretty early in its introduction. And this bill was referred to the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, which is a common committee that healthcare bills go to. There are two other bills that, again, um, benefit patients diagnosed with endometriosis. Uh, one is a bill looking at ensuring access to contraception of patients um, when they go to the pharmacy, avoiding barriers to patients accessing contraception. We know that endome- or, excuse me, using um, birth control pills, hormonal contraception, is um, important for patients who have a history of endometriosis. Um, this bill was in the... This is a by... Um, bicameral. It's a partisan bill, so there's no Republicans who have signed on to it. That in the Senate has been sent to the Health Committee and in the House to the Energy and Commerce Committee. And then the last bill is, um, I don't know how much traction it will get, but it's requiring insurance companies to cover infertility treatments. Very interesting. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.